0: Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Arlene, and today our topic is STEM, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. University of Alaska Anchorage is hosting a STEM day on Saturday, October 6th. Various departments and student clubs staff tables in the ConocoPhillips Integrated Sciences building from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. on that Saturday. It's an outreach event primarily aimed at K-12 students in Alaska. I started out my college career as a math major with a computer programming minor, so even though that didn't last as a career option for me, I still like it when I get to hang around the edges of the STEM world. So in 2016, when the call went out for participants in the first UAA STEM Day, I said, we're in, and signed up the archives. And we did it again in 2017, and we're getting ready to do it again in a few weeks. Which was the genesis of the topic of this podcast, since we were thinking about what we might bring along with us this year. We have the papers of some scientists and researchers, which Veronica and Gwen will be talking about in a bit. But I wanted to talk on a little bit more overarching level. And to do that, I'll start out with a bit about why I wanted to get involved in STEM Day in the first place. If you surveyed a bunch of people and asked them who uses archives, chances are a lot of them would say historians. That seems pretty natural. Archives house materials that document the past, and I think sometimes we assume the past is the purview of historians. That's what historians do, absolutely, but they're certainly not the only people who can make use of archival materials. Our user statistics show that, and since we know that people interested in STEM topics can make use of archives, but maybe they don't know it, STEM Day is a great opportunity for us to reach potential users, young ones, and a lot of them, and even sometimes some of the not-so-young ones that are already well along the way in their STEM careers that are sitting at tables next to us and trying to figure out exactly why we're there. As you might expect, the first year we participated in STEM Day, we didn't know what would work, what wouldn't. So we took along an old assaying scale from one of our mining collections, a few old math texts from our rare books collection, some surveying field books, and a few other artifacts from collections like slide rules and a surveying transit. The assaying scale was a huge hit as kids placed items of varying weights on it and tried to get it to balance. One of the books we had taken was a 1654 edition of Euclid's Elements, and though we had one family who knew a little Latin were deciphering the text, most everybody got stuck on the, how old is that? Question, rapidly followed by, and you're letting me touch it? If there was an award for most selfies taken with our materials, that euclid probably still holds it. Last year we brought back the euclid, but decided not to bring the scale because it was just too fragile. We thought having some take-homes might be a good idea, so we went through a few collections and created a few coloring sheets with some diagrams or drawings of insects from a collection that included some college entomology homework. And I've been thinking about concentrating on the T and STEM and for some reason had my hands in one of our collections with some duplicate stereotypes, so I thought that showing off old-school 3D technology might be fun. We have an old-style stereo viewer, but it's really fragile, plus there's no way to easily clean it and we thought that bringing that one along wasn't a great idea. I managed to find some contemporary stereo viewers for sale online, designed by Brian May of Queen, and we were ready to go. Euclid was still pretty popular last year, and for the age reason thing again, but the stereo views were definitely the hit of the day. It also gave us a little chance to share the photographic techniques that went into creating stereo views and other image types. Which is a segue to the next point, which is about science and how it crops up in collections, sometimes in unexpected places. As I said earlier, we have some collections from scientists, but sometimes science research can make use of things you may not automatically associate with science. For example, a few years back we had a researcher in who was working on a project to document historical walrus populations in various areas of Alaska. He ended up finding some data he could use in a collection from an ethnographer, who had visited an Alaskan village in the mid-1950s and made some notes about walrus harvests in the village. Most likely the ethnographer never foresaw that kind of use of the information he was documenting. He was creating it for an entirely different purpose. On the T is for Technology theme in Science in Unexpected Places, we often find that the records we hold are themselves of interest. It's always fascinating to have a history student come in, be reading letters in a collection, and suddenly have the students start discovering how different document technologies might have changed the very nature of the documentation they're reading and what effect that might have had on the content, like the ability to print color on a page. Or how if you had to rely on carbon paper, and not everybody knows what that is anymore, and hand-done corrections to a typed business letter, you might try to keep it short. Or if you're paying by the letter or word like you would for a telegram. To understand the contents of documents fully, sometimes you need to understand the technology that went into their creation. But science can come out of non-scientific records in other ways, too. Glaciologists and volcanologists often use tourist photographs of mountains and glaciers to track their changes over time, since those photos are often taken from similar angles if the tour routes stay fairly consistent. Structural engineers can look at photographs of building damage from the 1964 Alaska earthquake to see what construction techniques or soil foundations withstand major tremors, and maybe more to the point, what techniques or lands don't withstand major tremors. There's data and technology and engineering and math all over all sorts of archival records. It's just a matter of finding it and figuring out how to make it work for your research project. Having said that, we have a fair amount of collections that were created by and for scientific research. Next up is Veronica, who's going to talk a little bit about scientific collections and about a couple of those collections that we hold.
1: Last fall, my boyfriend and I were going for a drive before the snow came. At the time, we had recently taken to listening to podcasts in the car instead of music. On this day, we listened to Season 2, Episode 10 of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, an episode titled The Basement Tapes. The Basement Tapes was about Dr. Ivan France Jr., who studied heart disease and the role of cholesterol and blood lipids in heart attacks. He was one of several physicians who participated in the National Diet Heart Study, which began in the 1960s. However, unlike other nutrition studies, this one used participants who were in various mental and health institutions in Minnesota that prepared all of their meals and kept records about who ate what. He had a control group and a closed population, whereas other studies use members of the general population who often lie or misremember what they ate, which affects the data. For this particular study, which had over 9,400 participants, half the group received butter with their meal, half the group received margarine, half the group ate food cooked in vegetable oil and low fat. The other side food cooked with saturated fat the study lasted five years from 1968 to 1973. in the end the study revealed that while the vegetable oil side did have lower cholesterol their lifespan was not affected results that those studying the data could not make sense of dr france did publish a paper years later noting the results but the study went largely unnoticed he died in 2009 but kept the raw data which was stored on magnetic tape and punch cards in his basement Around 2013, Christopher Ramson of the National Institutes of Health contacted Dr. France's son, Robert, asking if the family still had the data. Robert France found the tapes. Ramson, along with a team of other scientists, found, once converting the tapes, that the lower cholesterol fell, the higher the risk of dying, which is pretty much against everything we are told about our diets. But let's leave the study, because I am not here to debate data or diets. I am here to discuss why it is important for archives to keep these materials, for archives to keep raw data from studies. In the podcast episode, Robert Frans said his father kept the raw data of his study under the assumption that universities throw things out that they think are taking up space and see no reason to preserve. In an article published in Scientific American, Ramston says that his discovery and analysis of long-lost data underline how the failure to publish the results of clinical trials can undermine truth. I would like to add to that. Whether or not data from a study is published does not mean it should not be preserved. I do not know how or why Dr. France was under the impression that universities do not keep this data, but I know he was not the only one to think that. So why is it important for archives to collect data from various studies, and how can that information be used? Well, for one, researchers can use the information for contemporary studies, or to build upon studies that were completed in the past. Someone may have gotten millions of dollars in 1965 for a study in heart disease, but that does not mean another person will today. Or these studies can be re-examined. Someone can take a second look to reevaluate the data or see if there are any flaws. Researchers can also learn how and why certain studies were conducted, or how scientific research has evolved over time. If some of the data is kept in the creator's personal collection, researchers can delve deeper into the collection to determine what the creator's personal biases could have been and if they affected the research. Or if their data is from an unpublished study, was the study not published because it went against what mainstream society believed to be true? Now I will discuss two collections we have in our archives, what they encompass, and the potential ways they can be used by researchers. In our holdings, are the papers of both Charles Sawyer Wilson and Mildred Stratton Wilson, a husband and wife who are both scientists. Charles Sawyer Wilson received B.S. and M.S. degrees from the University of California, Berkeley. In 1934, Charles married Mildred Stratton. He remained at UC Berkeley studying for a Ph.D. until 1938. When he accepted a job with the Division of Insects Affecting Man and Animals, Bureau of Entomology and Plant Quarantine, United States Department of Agriculture, or the USDA. During his employment with the USDA, he worked as a junior entomologist in 1938, assistant entomologist in 1939, and associate entomologist in 1942. He then worked at the USDA's Beltsville Research Center in Beltsville, Maryland until he joined the Naval Reserve as a lieutenant junior grade in 1943. Wilson worked at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and with Naval Medical Research Unit No. 2 in the Solomon Islands and on Guadalcanal from June 1944 to February 1945. After being released from active duty in 1945, he returned to work for the USDA in 1946 and became involved in the Alaska Insect Control Project, which brought him to Anchorage, Alaska. In 1948, he accepted a job as entomologist for headquarters to U.S. Army Alaska Office of the Army Engineer. In 1949, he became an entomologist and sanitarian for the U.S. Public Health Service. In 1955, he began working for the post-engineers at Fort Richardson as the insect control supervisor, a position he held until his retirement in 1970. In the course of his career, Wilson was active in researching the effectiveness of various types of sprayers, nozzles, and insecticides for use against mosquitoes, and made a number of innovations, some of which he attempted to patent. He was also involved in the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Alaska Division, the annual Alaskan Science Conferences, and the Chugach Electric Association. Charles Wilson died in 1985. The collection contains papers relating to Charles Wilson's personal and professional life. Included in the collection are Wilson's notes, exams, and other course-related materials from his studies at UC Berkeley, employment records, correspondence, speeches and drafts for articles he wrote, and research files regarding sprayers and nozzles, which include lab data, photographs, reports, and diagrams so how could his collection be used researchers could look at Wilson's coursework and how he was taught compared to how similar courses are taught today people can look at his research regarding sprayer nozzles and droplets and how he decided what was the most effective type of nozzle or how the approach to mosquito abatement has changed over the years and how the United States government was involved in insect control all right so that's Charles sorry Wilson and now on to his wife Mildred Wilson as I said earlier Charles Surrey Wilson married Mildred Stratton in 1934 Mildred began her studies in 1925 at Western Washington Teachers College in Bellingham, Washington, where she remained until 1927. She taught elementary school and junior high school in the Marysville school system from 1927 to 1934. She attended the University of California Berkeley and received her AB in 1938. She remained at Berkeley as a research assistant in invertebrate zoology until 1940. The first of her many professional papers appeared in 1941. In 1944, she became an assistant curator in the Smithsonian Institution's Division of Marine Invertebrates. In 1946, she was appointed as a research associate of the Smithsonian Institution, a connection she retained for her entire career. After moving to Alaska, she became a biology consultant to the Arctic Health Research Center of the U.S. Public Health Service. She also became an associate of marine science at the University of Alaska in 1968 with the Institute of Marine Science. The focus of her research was on copepods. Her laboratory was in her home in Spinard, which is a neighborhood in Anchorage. She received several notable grants and fellowships in the course of her career and was the first Alaskan to receive a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1955 and also the first Alaskan to receive a National Science Foundation grant also in 1955. Mildred Wilson died in 1973. She had hoped to create a monograph of the genius Dioptimus in North America but was unable to complete it before her death. Her collection includes correspondence, writings, and publications, several drawings of copepods, photographs, and research notes. She also added new chapters to a revised publication of Henry Baldwin Ward's and George Taylor Whipple's Freshwater Biology. Her collection includes galley proofs, drafts, and drawings related to this publication, as well as several others by Wilson. When she moved to Alaska, Mildred was doing research in a place where little copepod research had been done. Potential researchers could use her collection to delve into how she accomplished this and what she had discovered. Or, look at how Mildred's move to Alaska may have affected or changed her personal research interest. The Wilsons are just two examples of collections we have in our holdings related to the STEM fields. Their collection guides can be found on our website. We also have created topic guides for our collections that relate to geology, engineering, surveying, botany, communication systems, and health and medicine. These topic guides can be found on our website archives.consortiumlibrary.org.
0: So that was a look at why scientific research should be preserved and the types of research that could be done with scientific collections. Next up is Gwen. She's going to talk about collections with a specific type of scientific data in them, medical research, and what that can mean for us and for researchers.
2: Hi, this is Gwen. And if it sounds like I have a cold, I do. But this is the perfect segue into my portion of the episode today. Alaska deals with a unique set of challenges in the field of health and medicine. We have higher rates of certain infectious diseases, like tuberculosis, as well as other health issues like alcoholism. The environment itself can also be detrimental to human health. Cold temperatures can cause frostbite and hypothermia. And Alaska has a population spread over a huge area with many small rural communities that cannot support major hospitals. Because of different issues Alaska faces when it comes to health, healthcare in Alaska and other northern regions is a topic of interest for many researchers. There are whole organizations dealing with circumpolar health issues the American Society for Circumpolar Health and the International Union for Circumpolar Health, to name a couple. Many health professionals in Alaska have done research into health issues facing the state. And for better or for worse, researchers have had an interest in health issues affecting Alaska Native groups. Some of these researchers have donated their papers, including original research, to the archives. William Mills was an orthopedic surgeon in Anchorage who was a leading expert on cold injury. Frank Pauls was a public health microbiologist who conducted blood studies on Alaska Natives. Christine Heller was a nutritionist who worked on the Alaska Dietary Survey, studying what various Alaska Native groups ate. Some researchers who have health information in their collections aren't health professionals at all. Charles Lucier was an anthropologist who studied Alaska Native cultures on the Seward Peninsula and Kotzebue Sound. Having health research in our collections poses some issues when it comes to providing access. Some of these researchers, like Mills, were using actual case studies from the medical practices in their research. So they kept entire patient files complete with information that could be used to identify patients. Dr. Mills's collection contains photographs of people with frostbitten body parts, patient case files, and even correspondence with patients years later that include details of their treatment. Frank Pauls' collection contains data from studies on blood types, and enteric diseases that contain information identifying the subjects. Christine Heller's collection contains daily food records and annotated Bureau of Indian Affairs census schedules, which also contain information that could be used to identify individuals. And the Charles Lucier papers contain one folder of blood type data. Even if the data has been anonymized so that the subjects' names have been removed, in smaller villages in Alaska, an age and the nature of the illness or injury could be enough to identify an individual. It is important to us from a professional ethics standpoint, and also from a basic human decency standpoint, to protect the people who appear in our collections from having their private health information made accessible to the public without their consent. And it also might just be against the law to do so. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, passed in 1996, contains a privacy rule that includes regulations about the disclosure of protected health information, which includes any information about medical treatment, payment, etc. that can be connected to an individual. When the act first went into effect, this information was protected indefinitely. However, in 2013, the law was revised so that it is now only protected for 50 years after the patient's death. While only covered entities like service providers and insurers are required to protect this information, UAA might be considered a covered entity because of its affiliation with a medical school. The privacy rule allows for hybrid entities that have a covered and non-covered portions of the organization, which might apply to UAA, but just to be safe, we'll stick with following HIPAA. When dealing with tricky issues, such as health information in our collections, we often look to our national professional organization, the Society of American Archivists, or SAA, and articles written for his journal, The American Archivist, for guidance. Unfortunately, there have been few articles written recently since the passage of HIPAA for the American Archivist that discuss how to deal with sensitive medical information and collections. There is a science, technology, and healthcare section of SAA, as well as a privacy and confidentiality section, which has a bibliography of articles relating to health records. There is also an organization, Archivists and Librarians in the History of the Health Sciences, which has some information on its website regarding HIPAA and other privacy considerations. However, medical collections make up a relatively small portion of our collections, and we aren't always able to keep up with the literature surrounding every subject in our collections. So, what do we end up doing when we find personally identifiable health information in a collection? Well, some cases are pretty straightforward. If the information identifying individuals is confined to a few folders within the collection, we typically restrict those folders. This is the case with the Charles Lucier papers, the Christine Heller papers, and the Frank Pauls papers. Our primary goal is to provide access to our collections, so we rarely restrict information. In this case, protecting privacy supersedes our mission to provide access, and we may be legally obligated not to make it public. So why don't we just throw it away? Well, original research data can have value to later researchers studying everything from treatment methods at a particular time to how the studies themselves were conducted. So in some cases, we might be able to provide redacted copies of the restricted files, or once everyone who participated in the studies is long dead, we can open up the closed portions of the collections. Other cases are a little messier. Dr. Mills's collection came in with health information identifying individual patients scattered throughout the collection. I already mentioned that his correspondence contains letters from patients discussing their treatment. He had subject files on a wide range of conditions and information on patients that he treated with those conditions can be found in some of the files, which also contain more general information about those conditions. I worked on describing the collection and quickly realized that to create a folder level contents list in the finding aid, I would have to restrict pretty much every other folder. In the end, I generally described what was in each box and put a restriction on the collection that people wishing to see parts of the collection would need to contact us prior to their visit so we could go through and restrict or redact information from the parts they wanted to see. Several months later, one of our donors, Carl Hild, contacted us and asked if he could volunteer with us. Carl, an Arctic health researcher himself, knew Dr. Mills and agreed to go through the collection folder by folder and remove anything that could be used to identify an individual patient or research subject, linking it back to its original folder. When the project is finished, researchers can use the majority of the collection without restriction and request redacted copies of the restricted pieces of the collection. This will also allow us to create a more detailed container list so that people can find documents of interest in the collection more easily.
0: That's our look at STEM in archives and some of the challenges and opportunities that can come with preserving and providing access to STEM materials even if maybe not all of them were created with STEM in mind. But back to STEM Day 2018 for a moment. We haven't quite decided what we're bringing along, and we would better decide quick since it's in about a week from when we're recording this podcast. We'll probably bring along the stereo views again because those are really so popular. We also have the records of the Anchorage Audubon Christmas bird counts. Since those began in the 1950s and I've been thinking about bringing along this giant display that's part of the collection. It's a huge exhibit piece in table format that shows all the species along the vertical axis and the years along the horizontal axis and each cell has the count seen of each species in each year. It's kind of fascinating on a longitudinal basis, because you can see how our resident bird species are moving into or out of anchorage over time. Some trends are definitely visible, and maybe we'll see if the attendees can spot some of those trends. It's also a great reminder of how important citizen science can be, and that not everything in an archives needs to be the product of professional STEM researchers to be a good source of information. Thank you for coming along on this Archiving AK journey with us today. For our October podcast, Veronica will be interviewing two of our colleagues from the Alaska State Archives, Leah Geibel and Chris Hebe. They're two of the archivists at the State Archives in Juneau. They'll be discussing the types of records they hold and the work that they do.